You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we ask now as we uh, look at your word, as I I speak about your word, that you would come and work in our hearts, uh, that we would receive it, that we would hear it, and that we would obey it. And Father, we ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, how can we live well in our world today? Uh, It can sometimes feel like Christians no longer have a place in Western society. Now, you might not feel this in the South, uh, where, you know, Birmingham, Alabama is the second most uh, church city in, a, in America. But if you leave the South, it's a whole different picture. And it can feel like anything you do or anything you say online or in public might offend someone. So how do we live well in this world? Well, pastor and cultural uh, commentator... Mark Sayers thinks that this cultural moment of post-Christianity is the world trying to have the kingdom of God without having the king. It's the world trying to have the kingdom of God without the king. He says, post-Christianity is ultimately the project of the West to move beyond Christianity whilst feasting upon its fruit. That is, our society is trying to have the good things of Christianity but without Jesus Christ. They've left him behind. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is what we see in our passage today in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the lawyers for wanting the good things of the kingdom, but neglecting the king. The very people who are meant to be the most concerned with the things of God are the ones whose hearts are farthest from him. The ones who will ultimately reject him, who will cast him out of the city and hang him on a cross. Well, this passage comes to us in kind of two sections, uh, each section containing three words. I'm just going to dig deep into what this passage says so we can understand it better. In the first section, verses 37 to 44, Jesus proclaims three woes against the Pharisees. And these woes focus on the obsession of the Pharisees with their outward piety, on trying to look good on the outside. They do everything that they can so that others can see that they look good. And yet on the inside, they're dead. They're full of death. And so this passage begins with a familiar scene if you've been tracking through Luke's Gospel. Jesus again is invited to someone's place for dinner. And as he enters the house and reclines at the table for dinner, his host is astonished that Jesus doesn't wash his hands before eating. It was ritual for the Pharisees to wash their hands before a meal because they believed that they could pass kind of ritual uncleanness through their hands from one person to another. And so by not washing his hands, Jesus is going to make this food ritually unclean. If someone eats that food, then they become ritually unclean and they pass the uncleanness on. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for caring about the cleaning of their hands more than caring about the cleaning of their hearts. 
Instead of having hearts that are inclined towards God, full of light and love, Jesus says their hearts are full of death and greed. Greed and wickedness. So in verse 41, Jesus then instructs the Pharisees to give up the desires of their own heart so that they might, clean on the in, that they might be clean on the inside as well as the outside. We get this funny phrase in verse 41. I don't know if you picked it up. Jesus says, Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. It can be confusing to understand what that means, and Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. Turn both your pockets and your hearts inside out and give generously to the poor. Then your lives will be clean, not just your dishes or your hands. So turn your, both your pockets and your hearts inside out. Give from within, and then you will be clean on the inside as well as the out. Jesus then goes on to warn the Pharisees with these three stinging woes. The first woe in verse 42 is a similar to this rebuke that he's just given. And it's directed at the Pharisees' distorted uh, desire to be law keepers. So they want to be law keepers so much that they end up neglecting the very thing, the very purpose of the law, the very intention that the law was given. Look at what Jesus says in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees wanted so badly to keep the commandments that they would even tithe their herbs and their spices. Now that is strong commitment. Uh, This past summer, Rachel and I have been growing. I'm sure you've heard, I've talked about it in other sermons. It's been a great delight to me and Rachel. We've been growing herbs and uh, and, uh, vegetables. We've grew basil and mint and rosemary and parsley and tomatoes and peppers. We've called them our children. We're weird people. It's okay. But I can't imagine how long it would take for me to work out how much is 10% of my basil crop. You know, how, do I, how do I give 10% of the harvest of basils that I pick? Should I measure, measure each basil leaf to make sure that they're all the same size so that I'm giving exactly 10%? Do I give once out of every 10 harvests? You know, there's this desire to keep the commandments so perfectly from the Pharisees that they kind of miss the focus of these commandments. They're meant to focus their attention on God, but they're caught up in trying to work out, what is 10%? How, what am I meant to tithe? And this takes their attention away from God. They end up neglecting justice and the love of God. But notice what Jesus says next. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Their fastidious caused them to to neglect God, but it wasn't evil in and of itself. They should have been able to keep the commandments whilst also performing justice and loving God. The problem was that their attention, rather than focused on loving God and others, was directed inward, focused on themselves, neglecting everything else. Well, the second woe in verse 43 is on a similar point, directed at the Pharisees' desire to be seen by others. Instead of loving God and others, they sought to make a name for themselves, trying to get as much status as they could. Again, there's a goodness there, isn't there, to what they're trying to do. 
Paul writes to Timothy, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There's a goodness to relationships and caring for others and and knowing who people are. There's a goodness to greeting people in the marketplace and saying hello to them. The problem is when this good thing is used for puffing yourself up, when it's used to garner your own pride instead of caring for and loving people. Well, the third woe in verse 44 is maybe the most piercing one. Jesus says, Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. For the Jews, coming into contact with death made you ritually unclean. So what Jesus is saying here is that though you look perfectly normal and nice on the outside, when people come near you, they render themselves ritually unclean. They bring condemnation on themselves just by walking near you. Without even knowing it, they've come in contact with death. And these three woes all have a similar theme, don't they? They, The desire of the Pharisees to appear holy on the outside, but neglecting to be holy on the inside. When the second section, verses 45 to 52, Jesus' attention is turned to the lawyers. One of the lawyers, as Matt has been saying, is kind of getting awkward. And he's like, you know, you've, these things hurt me too. And he kind of, no, don't you know who I am? How, can, how dare you say these things? And so he pipes up and Jesus kind of directs the fire hose to the lawyers now. He pronounces judgment on them with three woes. First woe in, uh, first woe in verse 46 They are making it a burden to follow God. Though they made rules and enforced them, they neither followed them or helped others to follow them either. And we see this played out through the Pharisees. It's from the lawyer's interpretation of the law that everything must be tithed, including their mint, that the burden is put on them. So the Pharisees, seeking to do what is right according to the interpretation of the law from the lawyers, follow these burdensome laws in order to be right with God. The second woe in verses 47 to 51 is against their complicity in killing the prophets. In Matthew's biography, Jesus says, You say if you had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So the Pharisees and the lawyers think that if the prophets had come in their time, they wouldn't have been like the people of old who had condemned and killed the prophets of old. But that isn't the case, is it? For they live in the time of the prophet, and they will reject him. The third woe in verse 52 is against the lawyers for keeping people from God. In their hands, the law that was intended to lead someone to God has become an obstacle course. Instead of leading people to God, they've been keeping people away from him. And just like the Pharisees, these lawyers, while maintaining an appearance of holiness, neglected, neglected the very thing that they were meant to do, to love God and to love their neighbor. They were meant to be shepherding people, teaching and encouraging, and yet they're keeping people from God putting burdens on them that they might follow God even more closely. 
make it harder for them to follow him. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, maybe you feel a little bit sympathetic for these Pharisees and lawyers, and maybe I'm the only one, but they're trying the best that they can to follow God. They're seeking after truth. They're trying to do what is good. You know, they're the nice kid in school. They're the, the teacher's pet. They're trying to do the right thing. But these woes against the Pharisees and the lawyers show us that sometimes the obsessive pursuit of what is right results in some very serious wrong. Though these people were trying to do the right thing, these pursuits caused them to neglect the very thing at the heart of their pursuit, a relationship with God. And ultimately, all this doing of good, all this pomp and circumstance caused their hearts to be turned away from God and the things that he loves. And much like our world today, the Pharisees and the lawyers, they wanted the kingdom, they wanted the good things of the kingdom without the king. They wanted the rules without the ruler. And in seeking to do good things, they've lost the plot. For the whole point of the law was to lead them back to God. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They were so caught up with trying to follow God, trying to interpret his law the right way, that they lost sight of him and they no longer knew him. So much so that when God comes into their midst, speaking to them, eating with them, they reject him. And in a matter of chapters, these so-called teachers, these so-called leaders of the community, will send the God of glory to the cross of Calvary. So Jesus delivers a scathing rebuke to them. And he delivers the similar rebuke in John's Gospel, saying... You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to have life. These leaders had got lost in all the detail and neglected the bigger picture. They were so busy studying the trees, they got lost in the forest. And so Jesus comes to do what the law was powerless to do. He chops them down. He gives them a reality check. He comes and he says, you think you know God, but you don't. For if you had known God, you would have, you would have known me. You would have heard my voice and you would have followed me. We've heard this time and time again throughout Luke's gospel. Those who love God obey Jesus. They hear his voice and they follow him. They hear the voice of the good shepherd and follow after him. So why does Jesus act in this way? This seems very un-Christ-like for Jesus to do. I've been saying this a while. There's a, I saw a Babylon Bee article on Facebook that was all about this uh, liberal Christian saying that Jesus is not very Christ-like. Jesus needs to be more Christ-like in his actions. And we see this here. It's not very nice of Jesus to come and kind of give these woes against these Pharisees and his lawyers. So what is he, what's Jesus trying to do here? Well, the point of Jesus' words is to lead them to repentance. It's to drive these Pharisees and these lawyers to their knees so they would realize that they need help, they need forgiveness, they need Jesus. And this passage, passage shows us that 
it's not enough just to know God, to know what he says and to understand what he commands. It's, there's more to it about than that. You can know about him without actually knowing him. And this is the heart of the matter. You've got to take God's words and write them on your heart and apply them to yourself. And if you do that, then there are two ways that this will affect you. The first way is in humility. When the law comes and accuses you, when Jesus comes and judges you, then one way to respond to him is in humility. This comes when we're honest with God, when we realize that we don't deserve anything from God, that he is right and that we are wrong. And we see this with Nathan when he accuses David of sin, of the sin of raping Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. David responds with humility in 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He realized that he'd done wrong, that he was in the wrong, deserving of punishment. And he cried out to God, and we see that through his response in the Psalms. On the other hand, the the other response is pride. When the Lord accuses you, when Jesus comes and pronounces woe against you, the second way to respond is with pride. Who do you think you are, Jesus? How dare you say those things? Don't you know who we are? We're the the Pharisees, we're the lawyers. What good can come out of Nazareth? Well, how do these Pharisees and these lawyers respond? It's with humility, right? That's what we expect from leaders of Israel, that they would respond with humility. Well, sadly, no. As we know, these guys are foolish. And these leaders of Israel, they should have been the first to repent. After studying the law so much, they should have known that they couldn't measure up. Well, in the last two verses of chapter 11, we see their response. It's not actually in our passage, but in verses 53 and 54, it says, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers and the Pharisees, began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Sounds like humility, doesn't it? These guys, these leaders of Israel, they're meant to be repentant, but they're not. They're indignant, full of pride, waiting to catch Jesus so that they might kill him. Well, this passage highlights a danger for each of us as well. Uh, It can be very easy to point the finger at them and say, you foolish Pharisees, you foolish lawyers. I'm just so glad that I'm not one of them. I'm not like them. But as we seek to live out obedience to God, we too are in danger of thinking too much of ourselves. See, through our selfishness, through our self-centeredness, we can take the good things of God and distort them as well. So they become idols that we worship. And these idols draw us away from God, turning our focus away from Him ultimately turning our hearts away from God. So this is why we need to be reminded again and again of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not about what we can do for him, but it's what, about, it's what he has done for us. By sending his son to die for us, 
in order that we might have a relationship with the king, with the ruler, with him. So praise be to God that he has loved us even when we are like these Pharisees and these lawyers, even when we rejected him, even when we cast him out and hang him on the tree. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you come at us uh, with the law and you accuse us, saying that you can't measure up. And Father, we know that we can't. We know that we are not good enough for you. And we ask that you would pour out your love and your mercy on us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that you have done so uh, on the cross. We ask that you would give us humility, soften our hearts that we would uh, seek after you, that we would turn to you in repentance and trust in your love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.